When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Gilbert Gottfried, and this is Gilbert Gottfried's amazing, colossal show. I'm here with my co-host, Frank Santo Padre, and we're here at the George Burns Room at the legendary Friars Club in New York City. Our guest this week is an actor, producer, director, voiceover artist, author, and activist. He's also a social media superstar with over 10 million Facebook and Twitter followers. And one of the most beloved figures in popular culture, he's appeared in hundreds of movies and TV shows, appearing alongside everyone from Cary Grant to Frank Sinatra to John Wayne. But he's best known for his role of the helmsman, Hikaru Sulu, on the legendary groundbreaking series Star Trek. His new Broadway musical, Allegiance, is currently playing to sold-out houses at the Longacre Theater. Please welcome the man who the New York Post called the Asian Betty White. Oh, my. (laughs) (laughs) Betty White. Do I have to have a sex change now (laughs) at this tender age? (laughs) George Takei. As if he needs any introduction. I've been called the Jewish Mary Tyler Moore. Really? Oh, so you've got a sex change, too. Why do they want to compare us to women? Yeah. <laughs> what is it about us? <laughs> they were talking about how you were a beloved icon. Oh, well, can't you, they beloved yeah. me as a man? Well, <laughs> <laughs> now you just got back from the doctor. Yes, I did. Okay, tell us, tell us this we- weird ailment. Well, yeah. I uh, have to cough in in Allegiance. <laughs> yes, in the, uh, your play. Yes. It's a very dusty internment camp that we're at. Yeah. And uh, I'm an old man, and I'm fragile, and yeah. I'm constantly coughing. And when, I, when they take me to the infirmary, I thought, you know, here's this threatening MP, military police, that comes yeah. and holds a gun against my grandson. And so I'm holding my cough and un- un- until he leaves. And when he leaves, I have this great big giant wheeze because I've been holding back the call. Yes. And that's what's been doing me in. I was losing my voice l- the last couple of days, and particularly can, yesterday. Can you, I know it's dangerous, but can you do your old wheeze? My, what yeah, I've your been dangerous doing that, that got yes, me in trouble? Yes. Okay. 
Uh, don't tell my doctor. Oh, I. <laughs> <laughs> she gave me str- and my hubby, who, who who's very obedient, and, and he's yeah. he's got a black whip that he yeah. cracks over me. And Brad is here. He is yeah. here, uh, and I'm not supposed to do this, yes. but because I have the protection of you and yes. your crew, because you know how uh, trustworthy I am. <laughs> Because, you know, I've been holding it back. Yes. And then that uh, vicious uh, gun-toting MP is gone. So it's a release. Yes. And that's what's been uh, damaging my voice. And, and I was losing it. I have uh, a duet to sing with Leia's. I did Oh, oh there. Now, now you've done it, Gil. Leia Salonga. And uh, I wasn't able, I was get, getting that wheeze out uh, singing. And so uh, I had went to see the doctor, and she told me what not to do, which I just did. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Could, can I hear your new cough? <laughs> <laughs> it's very exotic. Good. It's a, this disease that I've got. No one has ever heard of. It happens only in the Wyoming so, internment. A little like Luke Costello in uh, Oh yeah. In it, uh, yeah. Meets Frankenstein. <laughs> so you say you saw the Dracula. I've got a horrible cold. <laughs> oh chick. <laughs> now now um and and describe to us the examination. <laughs> well, she stuck this stick down my throat, which which, I'm, show, I'm, which is a probe, a, a, a camera. Yes, and you you see it on the screen. And now you're used as, to that. Well, I'm yes, <laughs> yes, but I'm not used to seeing what I thought I saw. Oh. <laughs> I can imagine a lot of things from what people yes. have told me. Yes. And it's, it looked like what they told me a vagina looks like. <laughs> <laughs> and it was bloody and red. <laughs> so I don't want to have that. So, so, so you're That's why I'm gay. <laughs> So your throat looks like a bloody vagina. Not quite yeah. bloody, but, you know, a little red on the rims. <laughs> I didn't know this was that kind of show. Yeah. Oh, welcome. <laughs> right in the gutter, five minutes into the show. Oh, yes. We're Immediately. Already, we're already talking about vaginas and stuff shoved down the throat. <laughs> That I'm familiar with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you said you actually gagged. Yes, I when, did. Yeah, that's, that's, that must be <laughs> major. Well, because it's a, a long, skinny thing that goes <laughs> way down here. <laughs> I'm not used to that. Yeah. <laughs> 
now, now, you said you agreed to do this show because you said you just want to talk about how much you hate William Shatner. <laughs> you mean this show? Yes. Or, or, <laughs> yeah, or, or every other show you've appeared on. No, no, no. Yeah. Yeah. I just calls it as I sees it. Uh-huh. He is what I've characterized him. <laughs> yeah. A great, huge, bountiful a lump of ego. And, <laughs> and, and I described all the things that he did and the, the things that he said, and uh, he takes great umbrage with that. I have yeah. no idea why. <laughs> it was a document I, in my autobiography. I described the thing. Oh, my goodness, all this oh, laughing oh, is yeah. starting to make my uh, voice crack again. Yeah. <laughs> Try to be less funny, Gil. Yes. yes. <laughs> now, can can you do a William Shatner imitation for us? Not with this uh, new instruction that I have in my voice. <laughs> <laughs> can you tell us some of the uh, things William Shatner did that pissed you off? Not pissed me off. Yeah. I just calls it as I saw it. <laughs> yeah. Um, like... Um, well, for one th- thing, proper etiquette is, uh, you know, when you do um, um, uh, close-ups on people yeah. uh, and you're playing a scene, <clears throat> I'm starting to lose my voice yeah. again, um, It's uh, you do uh, your off, off-camera lines yeah. by standing, you know, next to the camera. Yeah, the other actor yes. stands behind the camera. Uh, sometimes you can't do it, you know, yeah. because uh, you've got to study for the next scene or something. So that's understandable. But he con- constantly doesn't do uh, the offstage lines. Uh, one day we were uh, uh, working and uh, they, uh, um, the publicist came rushing in and uh, said, uh, uh, they whispered into uh, Bill's uh, ear, and uh, he went off with them. And so production came to halt. And uh, so I thought I'd take a walk. There was a fire in the, on the back lot. And they brought uh, Bill in, and they gave him a hose, and he started uh, <laughs> uh, watering the uh, fire. And uh, then as I was driving back home uh, at the end of the day, uh, they had the, uh, I had the news on the radio, and it said, William Shatner saved Paramount Studios. <laughs> <laughs> wow. He came and held the hose for about five minutes while the cameras went, and then he came back on uh, uh, the side stage, and we finished <laughs> filming. And he took uh, umbrage with that. Uh, there, were, uh, there was one memorable uh, morning when we... Uh, TV Guide was doing a, a photo spread on Leonard Nimoy becoming Mr. Spock. You know, the, yes. the pointy ears and the eyebrows going up. And <clears throat> and <clears throat> Leonard's always in the in the makeup room uh, first thing in the morning. He comes in about 5.30, thereabouts. And the rest of us stagger in later. And Leonard uh, had half his makeup uh, on, and the, uh, the uh, ph- uh, photographer was recording every uh, stage of that. And Bill came in and saw that. And uh, this was the first season when all of a sudden Leonard's uh, uh, fan mail, and back in those days we had what, what was called fan mail. Oh, yeah. And they were like about ten times what Bill was getting. And so there was a little tension. He saw that, and he left the makeup room and made a phone call to the front office 
um, calls, uh, uh, the, the call was made, and shortly thereafter, some um, uh, minion came in and dismissed the photographer. Leonard said, why? Uh, we're not finished with the uh, process of uh, the makeup uh, being put on uh, me to make me Spock. And they said, well, we don't know. Uh, they just got instructions to dismiss the photographer. And so <clears throat> uh, uh, he said, well, I'm not finishing my makeup. And he went back into his uh, trailer, and uh, uh, nothing ha happened. And so uh, calls were made, and as it turned out, Bill had written into his contract uh, photographer approval on the, set, on the soundstage. <laughs> Incredible. And he apparently exercised that. Um, the pho photographer was dismissed. And so, you know, Leonard wasn't uh, going to have any more makeup done. And he stayed in his dressing room. And then some black suits from the front office came in, and they went into Leonard's uh, dressing room, and they talked for a while. And then they went over to Bill's dressing room, and, he, and Bill was holed up in his uh, dressing room. And uh, then they went back and forth. We got into our makeup, uh, into our wardrobe, and we sat around the set waiting. And the assistant director came and said, uh, well, uh, looks like it's going to be a while before we get started. Why don't you, you guys go down to the commissary and go on an early coffee break? And so the rest of us uh, sauntered down to the commissary and spent uh, relaxing uh, uh, half an hour. And we decided to saunter back, and the uh, black suits were still going back and forth from Bill's dressing room to Leonard's dressing room. And we hung around a little bit, ch chit-chatted some more. The set um, was not lit yet. And then uh, the assistants came and said, why don't you guys go for an early lunch? We went to lunch. Had a nice, long, leisurely lunch, <laughs> and we sauntered back. And at last, the lights were on the set, and things were happening, and Leonard was back in the makeup room with the photographer recording the process of his becoming Mr. Uh, Spock. Uh, apparently, they got a resolution to that. And I wrote about that in my autobiography. And Bill didn't like that either. <laughs> <laughs> And uh, he's been bad-mouthing me ever since. I've, um, and, you know, the other thing that baffled us was uh, when Brad and I got married, uh, Walter, Walter Koenig, um, uh, he played Chekhov, became a very good friend, and we asked him to be our best man, and he agreed. And uh, Nichelle is a dear friend as well, so we asked her to become our uh, matron of honor. Nichelle said, I am not a matron. If Walter can be the best man, why can't I be the best lady? <laughs> and we said, of course you are. <laughs> Seems fair. And so because we had the, the, uh, the uh, Star Trek uh, tone to our wedding, we sent out invitations to everyone. And, you know, uh, they all uh, responded uh, and uh, Leonard uh, uh, initially said he uh, he was coming, but um, uh, he had uh, an emergency meeting in New York that he had to go to, so he wasn't able to be there. But we never heard from Bill, and we thought that's fine. You know, Bill never shows up at anything we do, so that's fine. And we went on. 
two months after the wedding, <laughs> he goes on YouTube ranting and raving about George not inviting him to the uh, to our wedding. We did send him an invitation. We were absolutely baffled. And if he did want to come that badly, why didn't he call us before the wedding, not two months after the wedding? You know, what, what, what is, what's the matter with him? We, we were absolutely baffled. We were um, uh, driving down Sunset Boulevard, and then we saw this billboard. It said, William Shatner's new talk show, Raw Nerves. And I said to Brad... That's why he complained. He needed publicity. You know, you just, just <laughs> oh, yeah, you've said that every time he has a book coming out, yeah. that he, he goes back to the feud <laughs> yeah. as a way to he, he works the system. The yeah, and uh, now uh, he must have some uh, some other project coming up because <laughs> the, the controversy again. You know, so we said, oh, well, that's Bill." You know. Whenever he, he, he needs publicity, he gins up that controversy. <laughs> he thinks, uh, what was the, the phrase he used? Uh, I'm very disturbed. Yeah, he yes. said you were disturbed. Yeah. 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 Well, who's the one that's disturbed? <laughs> I love that he plays the victim, too. I mean, it wasn't only you. There yeah. were other cast members as well exactly. who took issue with him and wrote Everybody. about it. He claims he has no idea he has, what everybody's talking about. And the... Uh, the, uh, uh, the, the thing about uh, Bill, I've done so many favors for him, even while he's complaining. He asked, uh, he's, he's, he's got a book coming out, being written by a ghostwriter, uh, about his friendship with Leonard. Yes, I, yeah, yeah. I saw that. And, and he, uh, his secretary called and asked whether I would talk to the ghostwriter or not. And so as a favor, again, hoping that he w- this would quiet him, I <laughs> did an interview with this ghostwriter about Leonard and uh, for him, uh, for Bill to use for his book. Uh, but he's still got this, you know, uh, 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 feud going. Uh, <laughs> the latest thing is I'm disturbed. And so I don't know what project he, uh, well, I guess this is to pub- publicize his new autobiography uh, <laughs> about his friendship with Leonard Nimoy. Well, look how much mileage he's gotten out of the feud. I mean, Howard Stern and entertainment, everywhere he goes. Exactly. It's why don't you like George Takei? <laughs> now, now, I heard his relationship with Leonard Nimoy wasn't that good either. Not if you listen to Bill. <laughs> he was a brother. <laughs> Now, I also heard, I think you said, like, at Star Trek, everyone knows that you are gay, mm-hmm. except for one person. <laughs> Is that shocking? <laughs> Everything went right over his head. <laughs> well, now that we brought up Leonard, I mean, you had a very different relationship with Leonard, and where Bill was, uh, you know, not a, not a generous actor, it's fair to say. <laughs> Yeah, I found in my research an interesting story about Leonard uh, and you both playing a part in Equus and something nice that he that, right. that he said to you. Well, he did uh, Equus on Broadway, uh, and uh, you know Leonard is a very fine, serious actor, uh, and I got the opportunity to do the same role, uh, Dysart, in Los Angeles at the East West Players, and Leonard was nice enough to come and see that. 
Uh, the uh, ushers came backstage yeah. and, and uh, uh, excitedly told me, Leonard Nimoy's in the audience. And I thought, oh, my. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Leonard, who did it on Broadway. Yeah. And uh, after the performance, I was steeled for Leonard uh, coming backstage. And, he, and so he came in smiling, and I said, well, Leonard, what'd you think? And he smiles, and he says, you are better now, I mean, he did it on Broadway. That is his very um, deferential way, uh, self, uh, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, way of, of flattering me. Yeah. And that, that was very kind of him. But, you know, he's been very good about He's uh, He's a very supportive guy. Uh, we did uh, Allegiance in uh, uh, San Diego, and he drove down with uh, another couple of friends that he brought with him to see uh, uh, Allegiance because he knew that was a project that was very near and dear to my heart. And uh, he was very interested in the uh, story of the internment as well. And he came backstage, and the rest of the cast was really excited. And this hurly-burly about getting a picture with uh, Leonard. And he um, uh, came to the... uh, screening of uh, To Be To K, uh, a documentary on Brad and me, and he said he's looking forward to seeing the Legions on Broadway, but alas, he passed uh, mm-hmm. a few months before we uh, opened this year, as a matter of fact, February of this year. Yeah, so, I've, I've never heard a bad thing about Leonard Nimoy. He is a real, genuine, uh, true friend, and a, a very gifted, serious artist. Not not only uh, as an actor, but also as a director. I mean, he uh, was enormously successful as a, a director. Oh, Three Men and a Baby. baby. Yeah. Yeah. And three Star Trek movies. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Some of the best ones. One. Yeah. yeah, Star Trek Four. Yeah, uh, it's very good. The, you know, when I was a struggling <clears throat> comedian, I had a job working the concessions in the Broadway theaters. Oh. And one of them was Equus. With Richard Burton. Richard Burton. Yeah. Who I worked with as well. Yeah. uh, With one particular horse called Nugget, the boy in races. That (laughs) stentorian voice. Nicely done. He's glorious. (laughs) Now, I... I, Oh, oh, another person I was fascinated by, another person shaped by World War II on Star Trek, James Doohan. He pronounces it doing. Doing. Yeah. I could. It's like, he says, uh, like, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> now, he was like a World War II hero. He was on uh, Normandy invasion. He was uh, a, a Canadian. Yeah. Um, born in um, uh, Vancouver, British Columbia. And he was with the uh, uh, Canadian Royal Air Force. And uh, he was in the European theater. And he was... Uh, he, he was also very self-effacing, uh, but he was a, a heroic during the uh, Second World War. Uh, and uh, he uh, used to love reminiscing about uh, his exploits then. I, I heard he was, like, shot six times in the Normandy invasion. And he lost a finger. Too. Yeah. He always uh, hid that finger. Um, oh. He held his hands like this. I think it was, it was his uh, index finger yeah. that he lost. And and I heard what <laughs> saved his life is his brother had given him a cigarette case. Oh, yeah. He talks about that. Yeah. yeah. 
And he's always kept that. And a dent in it. Yeah. Yep. Wow. See, so tell us a little so bit about smoking's good for you. It is. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think he would have lived longer if he had not smoked yeah. oh, as much as he did. Wow. He was constantly stepping out. And I, I'm a, a, a health uh, freak, and I used to waggle a finger at him, but I've given up because he was a, a dedicated smoker. Although he did uh, quit in the last few years of his life. Tell us about getting the call for Star Trek, George. And I know there's a story about you getting Gene Roddenberry's name wrong. <laughs> when your agent first called you and said there's a sci-fi series. and what, right. what, was, what were your first thoughts? Well, I um, thought uh, it's a pilot. It's a, a possible uh, right. series. Right. It could mean steady employment. So that was really exciting because uh, I'd only gotten one other uh, opportunity to do a pilot. Uh, that was uh, with uh, Dean Jagger, if you remember I know that Dean name. Jagger oh, yeah. from White Christmas. Academy Award-winning uh, actor. Uh, he played um, a scientist in Washington, D.C., and I was his assistant. Uh, it was called The House on K Street. Wow, that's and, not even on your IMDb page. No, because it didn't sell. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and then here was this other opportunity to do a pilot, and so I was really excited about that. Not so much um, because it was a science fiction piece, but because it was a pilot for a potential series. And I went in for the interview, and they uh, gave me this name of the producer. And I um, read it very quickly, so... I mispronounced the name when I walked in. I called him Mr. Rosenberry. Uh, you know, a lot yeah. of Rosens yeah. in, uh, in Hollywood. It <laughs> was, was a safe bet. I thought it was a safe, uh, safe guess. Uh, and uh, he corrected the uh, pronunciation of his name, but he, he then called me George Takai, a common mispronunciation of my surname because of the E-I. They want to give it that Germanic... Einstein, you know, pronunciation, mm -hmm. but it's uh, the vowels in Japanese are pronounced like the Mediterranean uh, languages, Italian, Spanish. It's Takei, E-I. However, <clears throat> the, there is a Japanese word pronounced Takai with an A, T-A-K-A-I, and that tra uh, translates into English as expensive. <laughs> and when I explained that to Gene, he said, oh, my goodness, a producer doesn't like to call it, uh, uh, an actor expensive. <laughs> and so I quickly told him, well, I'm Takei, which doesn't mean cheap either. <laughs> now, you, you worked with Jerry Lewis twice. Uh, I think I did. Th I'm not sure. We now. have yeah. uh, the big mouth and, who, and uh, which way to the front. Were the ones uh, listed on your... Yes, yeah, yes. Yeah. I thought maybe I did a third, but uh, yeah, you're right. Now, now which way to the front, of course, was a World War II comedy. And so I can only imagine the part you played. Uh, <laughs> I did not play a German soldier. No, no. <laughs> so you, you said you were kind of uh, embarrassed about that. Well... I actually didn't want to do it, but my agent said, these are the realities of Hollywood. You know, you, your, your career will be extended if you are in a big box office movie. And Jerry Lewis is always, constantly, big box office. 
And uh, if you turn this down, you know, that could mean that certain uh, words will get out and uh, it could uh, affect your employability. And so I did it reluctantly just because I passionately loved acting and, and my career. And so I did that, but I didn't do it willingly. My agent was very persuasive. Uh, and so I consider those two um, shows that I don't want to talk about. And that's the one that everybody wants me to oh, talk yeah. about. <laughs> now, what was Jerry Lewis like to work with? Well, he was Jerry Lewis on yeah. stage and off. Yeah. But he's also, I noticed, um, a very um, uh, venturesome guy. He likes new ideas, new uh, uh, technology. And it was on... Uh, a Jerry Lewis set that I first saw him uh, do something amazing. We'd shoot a scene, and he walked over to a uh, monitor, and he immediately saw that scene played back. We, uh, in Hollywood in those days, you had to wait till the next day to see the dailies, if you would call that phrase. The, da sure. uh, the dailies. Yeah. During lunch hour, we took our our brown bags into a screening room and we watched what we shot the day before. So you had to wait 24 hours before you could see uh, the, what you had done. But with Jerry Lewis, he was able to see it immediately afterwards uh, on the uh, uh, playback. And so I, I thought, this is amazing. You can see it immediately and you can fix it while you're on that set. Uh, so it's much more efficient and effective when actors are still remembering what they did or what they should have done. And uh, so I, I have uh, newfound respect for uh, Jerry Lewis uh, as a innovator, as a uh, venturesome uh, uh, filmmaker. Yeah, they said they he invented, he came up with that. The video playback. Yeah, yeah. I, I think they yeah. call it video assist. Video assist, that's right. Yeah. As he, long, go ahead. Well, and then I happened to be in the theater. I forget what play that we went to see. And uh, I felt someone tapping on my back. And I looked back, and there's Jerry Lewis seated right yeah. behind me. And so we chatted a little bit, and we talked about my, my admiration for him as an uh, innovator in uh, filmmaking. As long as we're talking about other icons that you worked with, uh, George, you're in a Sinatra movie called mm -hmm. Never So Few. Did you interact with the man? Well, uh, yeah, my scene was um, where he came in and mm -hmm. looked at all the wounded mm -hmm. uh, uh, Vietnamese soldiers, and uh, he talked to me <laughs> in, in the scene. But he seemed to be a rather standoffish kind of guy. Okay. I was just a young you know, right, sure. uh, day player, and he was the star of the movie. And so I kept my distance, and uh, he kept his. But there's a good picture of you with John Wayne in the, uh, on your website. You were in yes. the Green Berets. And I was more of a, uh, a, 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 a participant in uh -huh. that movie. Uh -huh. uh, in uh, Never So Few, I was a day player. Uh, but in that one, I uh, ran throughout the film until I died. <laughs> I, I remember working on a play on Broadway. I was like, like a guest uh, host of uh, Rocky Horror. And... The uh, one of the chorus boys was the grandson of John Wayne, 
grandson. Yeah. Interesting. And, and I can only imagine what John Wayne would be thinking of his grandson as a chorus Well, boy. because I remember uh, Patrick uh, Wayne, yeah. his son, yeah. was in that film, Green Berets. But he also had uh, a young son. He looked like he was like about um, 10 or 11 years old, pre, uh, pre-teen. And that was... Um, Another son of this. So he was a prolific guy. <laughs> <laughs> he was. What about Cary Grant and Walk, Don't Run? Cary Grant is exactly as he is on screen. Very debonair, very uh, uh, Natalie dressed all the time with that you know singular charismatic personality of his. And uh, I was a, a theater student at UCLA at that time. I kind of, as they say, bicycle between UCLA and movie studios uh, because they didn't have too many Asian American actors uh, in the business and my agent was a good agent they kept pulling me out of school and getting me jobs and uh, because I, I, I had school I uh, brought my books with me to the sound stage and in between shots I was you know doing my homework and uh, he, he noticed that he says young man you are such a studious thing. Did, did you know that you don't have to be smart to be an actor? <laughs> That's great. I think it was his last film, actually, Walk, Don't Run, with Jim was Hutton. Was it? Jim Hutton. Jim Hutton. Yeah, I think it was. And I saw Jim, and I worked with him in uh, the Green Berets as well. Right, right. And shortly after that, I saw him on, on the back lot at Paramount Studios, and just about a year or two after that, he was gone. Yeah, he died young. He died very young. Father of Timothy Hutton, That's for right. people that don't remember him. A real nice guy, very down-to-earth, easy, relaxed guy, and he died very young. Now, the Star Trek I remember uh, was the one with Frank Gorshin. <laughs> we were talking about yeah. it before mm-hmm. we turned the mics on. Yeah. yeah. And what do you remember about Frank Gorshin? First of all, he was the Riddler, and he was a great mimic. And he was an energetic guy, you know, the ever um, ready um, bunny. Yeah. I mean, always on, (laughs) always energetic. And that was um, a a typical uh, Star Trek episode because, uh, uh, you know, Gene Roddenberry wanted to deal with the issues of the time while at the same time telling a sci-fi story. And so he um, took issues. I mean, the 60s was a turbulent time in the the United States and in the world, for that matter. We had the Civil Rights Movement going. We had uh, the Vietnam War. We had the Cold War. And all those issues were addressed in in a a science fiction context. And um, to uh, illustrate to minim- uh, to uh, distill the civil rights movement to its essential, um, we went to an alien planet where there were two a- uh, battling races. One was black on the right side and white on the left side, and the other alien breed was black on the left side and white on the right side. And... They couldn't get along, and so we, we that was the essential story. And uh, Frank Gorshin was 
I can't remember whether he was black on the right or left. But it was that, <laughs> I can't that was the whole point of uh, yeah. that script. That it's you know, ridiculous, it's senseless, and uh, and we you know there we were in reality at that time um, uh, in the civil rights struggle, uh, the march in Selma and uh, lynchings literally going on at that time, and now here it is fifty years after that, and we have an African American as the president of the United States, so you know that's what keeps me uh, uh, optimistic about the future. We have a lot of problems still today, but we are making progress. And, you know, in small increments, progress is being made. For me, this year, 2015, was an, a vitally important year because, for one thing, we got allegiance on Broadway. And for another thing, we got marriage equality yep. for LGBT people from border to border, from coast to coast. You know, Brad and I got married in 2008 in California, but other states didn't have that. It was a patchwork of states. And now I can't pledge allegiance to the United States of America, all 50 states, and going to Alaska as well. You guys guys were ahead of the curve. (laughs) Yep. Yep. As a matter of fact, I came out because of something monumental that, that happened in California. The only other state that had uh, marriage equality in 2005 was um, Massachusetts. They got it in 2003 through the courts. It was a judicial route. But in California in 2005, both houses of our legislature, the the, uh, Senate and the Assembly, passed the marriage equality bill. All that was needed for that bill to become the law of the state was one more signature, that of the governor, who happened to be Arnold Schwarzenegger at that time. And when he campaigned for the governor's office, he campaigned by saying, I'm from Hollywood. I've worked with gays and lesbians. Some of my best friends are. Oh, yeah, he said, I have no problem with it. No problem yeah. with it. And yet he vetoed it. He, he vetoed said it even after the veto. You know, the press kept uh, asking him, well, why did you veto it? And he says, I have no problem with it. But I vetoed it. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast after this. And it's interesting because I read in the research that the Tab Hunter's career was one of the reasons that you managed to stay closeted for so long, or what exactly what instilled that fear in you? I was that you wouldn't work because uh, you know he was my heartthrob way back then. I mean, a classic American boy next door. Blonde, blue-eyed, athletic. Yeah, we have to get him for the show. You have He's to. an interesting man. He's a fascinating guy. He's in his 80s now. I know. I think there's a new documentary man. about him or something. New, new yeah. documentary. Yeah. Very, very uh, moving mm-hmm. documentary. And he's still a, a, a dynamic uh, personality and uh, a nice guy. And, uh, you know, I he, he was someone that uh, made me think, maybe I'll become an actor. Until Confidential Magazine, the um, the rag of that time, uh, exposed him as being gay, and his career faded. And so that was an object lesson for me. Right. I wanted to be an actor, and I knew that I couldn't if who I really was was known. I heard with when Rock Hudson was the biggest star around, 
that the tabloids were threatening the studio to expose him. And sometimes they could pay him off, or sometimes they could throw someone under the bus. And there was another actor, a handsome actor at the time named George Nader. And he was like a handsome guy. And they said, look, we'll give you him if you shut up about Rock Hudson. Right. And that killed us. Well, it's almost Nader. like the Red Scare. Oh, yeah. yeah. Sacrificing yeah. people up for. People were intimidated. Yeah. And because those deals were made. As a matter of fact, that was uh, how Tab Hunter was exposed. Tab Hunter's agent, Henry Wilson, was also Rock, Hunter, uh, Rock Hudson's uh, uh, agent. And um, that was the deal that was made. Tab Hunter for Rock Hudson. It's interesting. I didn't know that. That's sad. So that's, a, I guess, a bunch of careers probably were ruined that way. I will trade you. It was a very, very uh, insidious business back then you know yeah sure uh, today now as a matter of fact when i came out i uh, in 2005 because arnold schwarzenegger's uh, veto really had me raging and i thought well i've i've got to take a stand good for you at this point in my life and career uh, <clears throat> but uh i thought uh, that was going to be the end of my career. I was prepared to fade. I came out, and my career has blossomed. I was going to say, you owe Arnold Schwarzenegger a, fa- uh, a debt of gratitude. <laughs> I may have been bigger, bigger than you ever were. <laughs> okay, now I know I keep treating you like you're the next Rich Little. But can, can, oh, thank God he's a man. Rich Little. <laughs> Can, can You're you, not comparing me to Phyllis Diller. Can, <laughs> Only because he didn't think can, of it. Can you please attempt an Arnold Schwarzenegger imitation? Oh, I could. I dare not. Okay, can you voice. say in your own voice, I'll be back. I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> and I will. Yes. Now, I, I first met you... I, I think on, on the Howard Stern show. That's right. Yeah. When And I'll give the audience a chance to go, Gilbert Gottfried was on Howard Stern? <laughs> when? Oh, God. <laughs> Who would have thunk? <laughs> and, and I think that's where you got a whole second career. Yes. That. Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, it was in 2005 after I came out that I got a call from uh, Gary Delabate. And, you know, he has these prank calls uh, yeah. that he often makes. And I had been pranked a couple of times. So yeah. uh, when Gary called, and that was uh, New Year's week, I remember. So that was about 10 years ago, just about this time. Uh, he said, this is Gary uh, Delabate from the Howard Stern Show. Don't hang up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And so I said, all right, I'll listen to you, because I thought it was a prank, uh, yeah. and I was going to see how uh, how this was going to yes. turn out. And he said, um, we're, um, we'd like to uh, have you as uh, our official announcer for the new uh, satellite radio program that he's going to start up. And I said, I think I'm going to hang up. 
<laughs> I, yeah. I, I, you're pulling my leg again. Yeah. And said, no, don't hang up. And, and I, I said, well, why are you calling me directly? I have an agent, and I'm yeah. sure you, you, could, uh, you could find out who that is. Or if you don't, uh, I'll tell you who that is. And I told him. But he said, you know, we wanted to know whether you'd be interested, first of all. And I said, well, I, I would be interested if you call my agent first and my agent talk to me. And so I, <laughs> I tried to put him off like that. And so I gave my agent's um, uh, name and number. As it turned out, my agent is Howard Stern's agent, too. <laughs> so it worked out. It, yeah. it, and Don Buckwald? Don Buckwald. Yep. yep. And uh, so they um, uh, called my agent, and they discuss, uh, discussed what it was. But I'm really, despite my initial re- uh, reticence, I'm really grateful to Howard because he has opened new doors that I never expected to, and not just for my career, but uh, for me to reach a whole new audience. You know, one of the reasons why we finally decided to do that show was I've been going around on speaking tours throughout the country, uh, talking about the internment of Japanese Americans, but also relating that to uh, homophobia and uh, the legalized discrimination of LGBT people. And uh, I said, I, I go to all these you know, universities or uh, governmental agencies and, and make these speeches, but I notice that the people at these uh, events are either themselves gay or uh, allies, people who are already on our side. And we to to really bring change, I need to reach that decent, fair-minded, broad middle that's too busy, you know, making a living to think about other issues. How do how do we reach them? And I, I thought, well, I, I discussed this with Brad, and we said Howard Stern reaches an amazingly wide range of people, and they're dedicated listeners. They follow him wherever and whatever the issue, you know. And as a matter of fact, Brad was a listener of uh, the (laughs) Howard Stern show. And he said, you're right. And so maybe we should consider that. And uh, so we began discussions. And uh, sure enough, you know, Howard's turned out to be one of the people that helped bring about this open-minded attitude toward LGBT people, and things started to happen, and I was able to reach that broad, broad middle. Uh, studio heads, as well as insurance salesmen, uh, football players, professional football players, as well as uh, professional Broadway dancers, you know, a, a broad range of people, and so... Uh, Howard is someone that I owe a great uh, debt to. One, one, one day I'd like to appear on the Howard Stern Show. <laughs> <laughs> never say never. Yes. <laughs> you, you, uh, you mean you're trying to connect with uh, uh, Jewish people that look like Asians? <laughs> <laughs> you, th- you think he looks Asian, George? You, he looks yes. like, I, yeah. I told him on the Howard Stern Show, <laughs> he looks like my, uh, uh, my uncle. You, you guys could be distantly. Well, the, the face is yeah. very much like my uncle's, except he was heavier. But he was a, a Coca-Cola executive in Japan. 
because, because you know he spoke English and Japanese, and in the post-war years they wanted to have uh, someone who spoke uh, English, uh, uh, but also spoke uh, Japanese. And uh, I, um, when I, whenever I visited Japan, you know he would take me places and all that. And so he was always on my mind. And when you first came on, I said he looks like my uh, uncle Susumu. <laughs> However, he didn't laugh like you did. <laughs> Sumu <Only> got you. <laughs> I I remember I did the Friars roast of you. Yes, you did. Oh, I was there. I'm still sending. Well, that was a great night. I was well done. <laughs> and I remember afterwards, uh, you gave me a hug and said, "Thank you, Uncle." <laughs> And I'm still waiting for a photo of this guy. Yes, but I'm here in New York, and our family albums are back in Los Angeles. I will send you Uncle oh, okay. Susumu. <laughs> like, like Uncle Tanus. Yeah. <laughs> now that you bring it up, George, I found it interesting in the research that when you told your dad you wanted to be an actor, I mean, it was a little bit, he, he was a little bit concerned. He thought that, that you would have limited opportunities. Exactly. Being an Asian. Very limited opportunities and uh, a tough life. And what did you say to him? And I said, you know, I – well, he said, uh, look at the stereotypes that's available. Those are the roles that uh, uh, Asian-American actors are getting, you know. He wasn't wrong. He wasn't wrong. He was a wise man. But I told him, Daddy, I will change things. I will bring about change where we're going to be getting more dimension roles. And I am eternally grateful to my father. My father was a very unusual Japanese-American father of that generation. Um, He wanted me... um, He was in real estate, and he wanted me to uh, go into architecture. And I I think he fancied the idea of putting out a sign that said... Takei and Son Real Estate Development. <laughs> I would design the buildings and he would develop them. And as a good son, I started my college career as an architecture student, but um, I had to be true to myself. And when I finally came out as an aspiring actor to my father, uh, he, was, he knew me well enough. And he knew that I was passionate and strong-willed, bullheaded was the word he used, uh, and uh, he uh, understood me. And he said, "I told him I want to, you know, I did two years as an architect- architecture student at Berkeley, but um, I said I got to be true to myself. I really love acting, and I want to. I don't want to have regrets later on in my life." And my father understood what I meant by that. But when I said I wanted to come to New York and study at the Actors Studio, he said, well, that's a fine, respected acting school, but they won't give you a diploma when you finish there, which means you're a legitimately educated person. Your mother and I want you to have that. And I think in the back of his mind, he he thought, well, if he must study theater, at least he can go into teaching with a diploma. But um, he said, if you really want to study acting and the theater, here in town in Los Angeles, we have a fine theater school at 
UCLA. And when you finish there, they'll give you that piece of documentation. And But he said, you're a bullheaded kid. You'll insist on going to New York. So let me tell you, New York is a crowded, competitive, expensive place. And you have to be prepared to do it all on your own. However, if you go to UCLA to study theater and acting, then we'll subsidize you. Mm -hmm. So you choose. (laughs) New York on your own or UCLA with subsidy. (laughs) I made a self-discovery. I'm a practical kid. Smart. <laughs> I, I think I, it's funny. In in the old movies, they used to hire the Chinese actors to play. Mm-hmm. Well, Japanese. because we were all in internment camps. Yes, the Japanese uh, Americans. So yeah, they ch- uh, hired Chinese American actors to play Japanese in the war movies. Yeah, like Richard Liu was yes, always yes. the Japanese general. Yeah, when they weren't hiring Caucasian actors to oh, play yes. Charlie Chan. Chan, and, Chan. And, exactly. What, we, what are your feelings there? We, they call, yeah. we did a show. Oh, do you have some <laughs> questions about that? <laughs> well, it, well, it's interesting because you've been outspoken about that. There's There was talk of, of Akira, an Akira movie with, with white actors. That's right. And you, you spoke out about that. And you said there's progress being made since you started, but a long way to go. We still have a long ways to go because that sort of thing is still coming up. Uh, there's another anime uh, story yeah. that uh, they're considering with... Uh, um, uh, white actors. So, you know, the, we, at least here I am and here are other actors, uh, Asian-American actors, making uh, some advances. Lucy Liu came to see Allegiance, and, you know, she's made some... Inc- and I remember I did a, a, a play at the Manhattan Theater Club, and there was this Asian-American girl working props on that show. A few uh, years later... I saw that she was working in television as an actor, actress, you know, actor. And uh, she turned out to be Lucy Liu. That's great. She was working props at, Ma- at the Manhattan Theater Club. What do you think when you go back and you see Warner Oland as Charlie Chan or, or Karloff? Or Peter Laurie. Or Peter Laurie, yeah. you know, Mr. Moto. Or I mean, do you, Marlon Brando. Tea House of yeah. the August Moon. August Moon, yeah. yeah. Or we talked on the show, uh, Gilbert and I have a, a, a mini episode that we do, and we talked about Tony Randall and the Seven Faces of, of Dr. Lau. Do you cringe when you see these? You know, I, I'm a theater historian as well, uh-huh. and it's, uh, it's, it's a period piece. It reflects the period then. And, uh, you know, there's no way you can deny history. We need to... The reason why I want to tell the story of the internment is is because we have lessons to learn. And we should uh, not deny or try to ban uh, all those uh, um, films and uh, plays that we consider, you know, really demeaning. uh, Or... uh, or, or, uh, uh, of, uh, stereotyping, because that we we can say that's what we don't want. Sure, that's what we can uh, 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 grow from. We don't want Mickey Rooney in Breakfast you know, at Tiffany's. Exactly, you know, I, 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 I cringe. Right, <laughs> right. We all do. The the Chinese actor James Hung, uh, who's best known oh, as the. I have him written down. <laughs> James Hong. He's best known as the restaurant manager on Seinfeld. That's right. Is but he did a lot famous. of great stuff. Oh, oh, he's yeah, been yeah. in billions of things. He said he learned how to act Chinese by watching Peter Laurie as Mr. Moto. Well, that 
was the problem. You know, we um, we weren't there as creative people. We were there as rented Asian faces. You know, we were just renting out our faces. And uh, even the acting roles were taken on by uh, waiters in Chinese restaurants who were free during the daytime because they worked at night as waiters, you know. And so they rented out their um, Asian faces. And the creative people, the writers, the directors, the producers, were all Caucasians. And so the director would say, all right, uh, <clears throat> come in and sm smile and kowtow and shuffle over there and uh, giggle and then uh, go out. And so they did what they were told to do. You know, they were for hire. But now we have trained actors. We have now writers. In fact, Tony-winning uh, uh, play, uh, playwrights like David Henry Huang. And we have uh, directors, uh, Allegiance was directed by Stafford Arima, an Asian-American. And so we are now bringing dimension. We're creating real characters with a history, with uh, individual personalities. And that's the difference. We were faces for rent. And if uh, a white actor uh, uh, played the white view of Asians better, you know, like Warner Olin, mm -hmm. then that was uh, what, what we saw. But they weren't written by, or they didn't have a, 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 a worldview from Asian-American lenses, See, eyes. That's the difference. I, I heard that actually the Warner Olin, Charlie Chan movies, the Chinese were big fans of that. Not necessarily. Yeah. I mean, the, 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 the ones that were uh, conscious of what, yeah. of what was happening, uh, they, they resented yeah. being uh, depicted as those stereotypes. You know, Charlie Chan walked with a shuffle. Yes. You know, Asians, Amer uh, yeah. Asian Americans don't necessarily. There are some, some that shuffle because they have uh, infirmities in the leg. <laughs> but we don't all shuffle, you know. <laughs> I find it odd, too, that Key Luke was playing number one son, that they had an Asian actor as the son, but Charlie Chan himself was always Sidney Toller yes. or Warner Roland. He exactly. was always a Caucasian. Or Roland Winters. Or Roland was Winters. Was the last one. Very, very strange. Now, now, but the funny thing there is when I'll hear Asian actors complain there, it's like, I mean, parts like Charlie Chan, where, you know, it was this brilliant Asian guy fighting crime. Why couldn't that be played by brilliant Asian actors? Could have been. Yeah. You know, yeah. we're, uh, we're denied those real Paul Mooney and roles. The, the Good Earth. Yeah. And we could bring some of our uh, artistic, you know, actors' uh, creativity, our ideas, some vantage point. No, it, it's, it's always... Uh, the white actor that gets those substantial roles. That's the, uh, the uh, area where, you know, there's that uh, discriminatory limitation. And the, and the myth was that Asian-Americans can't act. You know, they're, they need guidance, the, the director telling them what to do. And so they'd much rather hire an actor, a white actor, who brings professionalism. But if we're not given the opportunity to... to uh, sink our teeth into real roles, then, you know, how can we develop as actors? And I admire the African-American uh, uh, acting community because 
they've gone beyond just getting substantial roles. They now, you know, are become, uh, have become bankable actors, which means uh, any uh, project that has Denzel Washington associated with it uh, is green-lighted. And therefore, those stories have the perspective of an African-American. You know, uh, he can be an alcoholic airline pilot and play that right. with dimension. They're, because, they're, you know, we're, we're everything. We're the human uh, uh, person. We are alcoholics. We have fallibilities. We're human. And that can be brought into a character by a great actor and a great star who greenlights a project. We, uh, as Asian Americans, we have still to get to that point. I think that day will come. I mean, I can't imagine in a drama that somebody would be doing what they call yellow face nowadays. You'll still see it in a comedy. You know, in- Christopher Walken played an Asian character in that ping pong movie. Oh, yeah. Balls of Fury. You'll see, you, maybe you could still get away with it in a comedy, but in a, res- in a respectable well, drama. Even in a comedy, I think they're wonderful comedic actors. Sure. You know? Of course. And why you'd li- not? You'd like to see it. Because you, know, you have to ha- have the opportunity to develop in that area. Right. And uh, you know, I maintain that I'm Japanese American. But I can play a Korean American. You have, or, 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 yeah. or yes, or <laughs> yeah. Vietnamese. You know, right. we're all actors, but we have to be given the opportunity to do that. And we, if you're limited to just you know these uh, shallow two-dimensional roles, then how can we develop as actors? You know what I've noticed uh, that it used to be Asian actors sometimes if they weren't important to the plot. Then it was just, oh, they look funny, they sound funny, and it's an easy laugh. And now it seems like that's moved over to uh, people from India. Now when you got someone from India. That's the wacky stereotype. Yeah. Yeah, but uh, uh, there's uh, Aziz. Uh, What's his name? Aziz Ansari. Uh, Aziz Ansari. Yeah, people like that, you know, who are uh, bringing that... uh, 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 East Indian intelligence to that uh, comic character. We will return to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast, but first, a word from our sponsor. Oh, and here's something to... Star Trek was produced by Desi Lu Studios. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, of course, Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. And you were actually in, and you're not the first actor I've had on here who was part of uh, Lucy's acting troupe. Were well, you in, uh, yeah. Star Trek was uh, a Desilu production. Yeah, but were you also in their acting uh, workshop? Oh, Desilu yeah. workshop. workshop. Yes. Yeah, I, I was. Uh, I did uh, take my lessons there, at Desilu Playhouse, which is now the. Uh, the commissary. <laughs> Interesting. <laughs> but it was a, a big uh, barn of a theater. And uh, uh, we, uh, uh, Sergeant, what's his name? Um, Joseph Sergeant? Uh, Joe Sargent. Yeah, director. Yeah. Yeah, he, was, director. Yeah, uh, he was the uh, uh, drama coach there. 
And so I studied there, yes. We had Robert Osborne on the show, who was a Desi Lu, uh, who was in the Desi Lu workshop. Oh. Do you know him from Turner Classic Movies? Um, no, You'd know I him if you saw really, him. He's oh, the host yeah. there. But, but I was not a contract player. Um, in Star Trek, um, uh, DeForest Kelly was the last of the Paramount contract players. And I used to love, after uh, lunch in the commissary, roaming around with him before, be, you know, because we had some time before we were ne- uh, needed on the set, roaming around the Paramount lot. And he would tell me that's where the chorus girls used, uh, uh, used to have their dressing room. And that's the writer's building. And that's where the writers all uh, stayed. And sure enough, when you see um, uh, Sunset Boulevard, uh, the writers were in that very same bungalow that uh, DeForest pointed out. Isn't that interesting? He turns up in so many westerns. Oh, he you does. You see him in a lot of stuff. Yep. He was a contract player. They were all Paramount uh, westerns, too. Right. Since we, you, you brought up Trek again, and real quick, and we, we'll, we'll wrap up soon. We kept you a long time. What, what's your relationship now with Trekkies? There's a wonderful episode of a sitcom called Party Down. Oh. <laughs> which I with Jane Lynch and some other people, uh, Adam Scott, which I I would urge listeners to find, where you going into a men's room, and somebody's do you know you, you, do you know this episode that you did? You're in a men's room and somebody the waiter keeps asking you about Star oh, Trek. Yes. <laughs> it's it's wonderful. I'm proud of my association with Star Trek. You know because we were talking about Asian American uh, uh, stereotypes. Mm-hmm. Well, this was the first time I had the opportunity to uh, play, without an accent, a member of the leadership team, and as a regular on a TV series. I mean, that was groundbreaking uh, for me, certainly, Mm -hmm. but also for Asian American, uh, uh, for for the Asian American image. And uh, we dealt with issues that were important issues of the time. And Gene Roddenberry had a vision for the human future. I mean, here we were uh, involved in the civil rights movement, but in the future, we're going to be seen as all contributing members of Starship uh, Earth. And it's that diversity, working together in concert, that uh, makes advance and progress possible. And so uh, I'm proud of my association with it. And the fact that uh, the fans were the ones that gave us this life. If it weren't for the fans, I mean, we would have been dead after three seasons. Mm -hmm. But because of that fan uh, dedication and their tenacity, their unwillingness to give up, you know, their love for Star Trek and the conventions and the uh, merchandising and all that became a great industry. So I do Star Trek conventions uh, as my way of saying thank you to the fans. Now, William Shatner almost got tarred and feathered for a skit he did on Saturday Night Live where he plays himself and he's saying to the Trekkies, he goes, you know, look, I don't know about this. Have any of you ever kissed a girl? Every and get a life. Yeah, right, get a life. Uh, move out of your uh, parents' basement. Right. You know. And and I remember. Wow. Yeah, that denigrating attitude. You know, because he's so important. Yeah, he's so great. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, you could tease but, the Trekkies a little bit. This, I mean, this, you did in that party yeah. down episode. Yeah, yes. Yeah. Yes. But the sketch itself was a funny sketch. Yes, it was. Yeah. But it it really captured Bill. <laughs> 
But I, you know, it's the fans that made Star Trek what it is. And next year, 2016, is the golden That's right. anniversary of Star Trek. Oh, wow. 50 years. Did, did I ask you what you thought about William Shatner? <laughs> Well, in, 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 in small part, Bill's personality is what made the character of Kirk so charismatic, so com- magnetic, so compelling, you know? So, yeah, I give Bill that. You've always been generous, even during the so-called feud with the Olivia de Havilland, Joan Fontaine thing that you guys have had going on for so long. You're, you're always generous. Who am to I, to- Olivia or Joan? <laughs> <laughs> and again, I got to get a, get a sex change for either one of them. <laughs> but, but you've always been generous to say, in spite of any difficulties we may had, you know, he's wonderful in the part. He, he owns is. he owns the part. He's a presence. I calls him as I see right. Oh, and that's what you know made character uh, made Kirk that uh, charismatic character uh, person. This is this is weird when he keeps saying I, I calls him as I see him because <laughs> it's like this Japanese guy doing a black voice. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm, Ameri- am, I'm an American. Yes. <laughs> it's a little bit of the kingfish. Yeah. In there. Well, I called him as I see them. Well, I, I, you could be, I, I'm saying to you, you could be Japanese if you wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> See, now, in the, this is what pisses me off. The universalities. In the old movies, I would have been cast. As a Japanese general. No one has ever cast you in an Asian part, huh? <laughs> <laughs> You're still young. And you know, what hap- uh, what, what's uh, in show business uh, and in theater art, it's the ability of the talent. You know, it's uh, I'm all for it, all things being equal. I'm all for all of us being able to play any part. I mean, I'm a Shakespeare buff. I'd love to do Macbeth. Only Patrick Stewart gets offered that role, you know. Uh, Damn Brits. Damn yeah. Brits. Yeah. And uh, right now I, I saw uh, King Charles III, brilliant. Tim Piggott Smith is fantastic as uh, King Charles, you know. Uh, but I, I'd like to think that if we're there, you know, we should be all, we should all be able to play See, I, these great I, roles. I, I want to yeah. give you a chance now. Uh, can can you as Shylock? I can. Uh, well, okay. I, I have uh, I I have uh, Cassius memorized. Yes, I know that virtue to be in you, Brutus, as well as I do know your outward favor. Well, honor is a subject of my story. I do not know what you and other men think of this life. As for my single self, I had as lief not be as live to be in awe of such a thing as I myself. I was born as free as Caesar. So were you. We both have fed as well, and we can both endure the winter's cold as well as he. For once upon a raw and gusty day, and on and on and on. But, you know, nice. okay. <laughs> as good as Gilgo. Okay. Can, <laughs> can, you, can you please say, hath not a Jew eyes? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you prick us, do we not bleed? Can you please? Uh, write it down and I okay. will. <laughs> I don't have that kind of time. I have to. I, all right. I, I have to. Have George take Okay, care. while you write it down, okay. I'm going to ask, ask George to, to tell us about... Give me a piece of paper. Here, right on there. <clears throat> okay. You can write it down, and I'm going to ask George about allegiance and, and this idea that I'd read that you've been leaving a seat open for. 
<laughs> a certain individual. Yes. Indeed. Every night at the show. You want to tell us about There's that? There's a sign right there. Well, you know, <laughs> I, I did the Celebrity Apprentice. Yes. As and, did Gilbert. Y- yes. Yes. And um, I um, have respect for him as a strong individual. But uh, his idea of uh, a healthy society, I, I, I'd like, I keep thinking I could help him. And uh, at one of the press conferences, I uh, challenged him in, with the press in, in front of me. I challenged him to, uh, to let me buy him lunch mm-hmm. at one of his restaurants okay. to discuss, discuss marriage equality. And I was fully ex- uh, expecting him to demur in front of the press. But he fooled me. He said, you know, George, maybe I could learn something from you. Yeah, uh, let's have lunch. We had some difficulties arranging our schedule. But eventually, after about uh, four months, we did uh, meet for that lunch. And what, and he knew we were going to talk about marriage equality. So when he came in, the first, first thing he said was, George, I just came from a beautiful gay wedding. And I, I, I said, well, it's a wedding, isn't it? And, uh, and who's it was it? And he said, well, two wonderful people, uh, two men. Uh, it turned out to be uh, um, uh, Jordan Roth's marriage, mm-hmm. uh, the uh, CEO of Jamson Theater. It was, it was a big, splashy, beautiful wedding. And uh, I said, well, th- there you are. You know, you've uh, co-opted my argument. You know, people are getting married. And at that time, New York, uh, New York didn't have marriage equality. I said, it is going to be good for you personally. You're a businessman. You have hotels. You have restaurants. And if we have marriage equality in New York, uh, people will come to celebrate their uh, wedded bliss by coming to the city and staying in your hotels, having uh, uh, dinners or celebrating in your restaurants. It's going to be good for business. Have that kind of uh, uh, attitude and not be discriminatory. Let's make it equal, equal for everybody. And he said, well, I'm a traditional marriage guy. But I said, the world is changing. You know, we have an African-American president now. And you, you have to keep up with the changes. You can't stay ossified. And he says, well, but I'm a traditional marriage. And so we didn't get anywhere. On, and so on his third marriage, by the way. disagree. On his third marriage. Right. <laughs> Worth pointing out. He, had, he believes yeah. in, in traditional marriage. Yeah, traditional and, divorce. And I, I, I got to tell people who are just listening and can't see what's going on. Here's uh, Frank interviewing George Takei as I, from memory... I'm writing down the speech of Shylock <laughs> in Merchant of Venice, oblivious. <laughs> okay, so now go for it. George Takei as Shylock in Merchant. <laughs> this Venice. is a cold reading. Yes. Okay. Now. <laughs> Hath not a Jew eyes? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you prick us, do we not bleed? <laughs> Nicely done. Excellent. Excellent. Ah, <laughs> uh, you're a great Shakespearean critic. Yes. Bravo. <laughs> see, see, now now here's an Asian playing a Jew, 
as opposed to like in Dr. No, I'm very proud of this. Oh, oh Joseph uh, Weisman. Uh, yes, a Jew playing an Asian. Right. Yeah, oh, yes. He was Dr. Dr. No. <laughs> right. Probably I'm, not the first Jewish. No, no. <laughs> no, probably not. Person to play an Asian. We're, go ahead, Gil. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, can you, uh, I, well, right now you're on Broadway in this show, uh, Allegiant. Which you saw. Uh, yes, yes, I did. Uh, you and What'd you think? Oh, excellent. Well, w- tell that to Donald Trump, because he can learn from... <laughs> <laughs> he's yeah. leaving a seat. Where, when you were off writing, George and I were discussing that he's left a seat, an empty seat, reserved for Donald Trump because at every show. he has banned all Muslims... From entry into the United States. Well, wants to. Want, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, he's advocating Advocating. That. And, and he's running for the presidency of the United States. That's a great responsibility. And you can't be that reckless. Uh, because, you know, Muslims are of all uh, uh, kinds of people. Look at uh, when you go to uh, Arlington National Cemetery, there are markers with religious symbols on them. And there are many that have Muslim symbols. Muslims have fought for this country, and they've died for this country. All Muslims are not alike. Right, sure. In the same way that I use the example, Timothy McVeigh is a classic American boy next door, blonde, blue-eyed, white. He is a terrorist. Yeah. Do we say all Americans are terrorists because... Uh, Timothy McVeigh is a horrific, despicable, grotesque terrorist. It's a great no. example. And that's what he, you know, because there's, there are um, uh, radical terrorists amongst the, the Muslim religion, they, he's um, uh, uh, painted with a broad brush, all Muslims as, as that way. We have congressmen that are Muslims. We have school teachers that are Muslims. And so I think he needs to learn from a, uh, from a chapter of American history when all Japanese Americans, because of the way we look, because we happen to look like the people that bombed Pearl Harbor, were put into barbed wire prison camps. No charges, no trial, in the most egregious violation of the U.S. Constitution, we were in prison for the duration of the war. And that's the story we tell, as you know, in Allegiance. And Donald Trump used that as the justification for his position on banning Muslims. from As if it was a successful exactly. initiative. M- more importantly, he fired me from celebrity. Exactly. Friends. Me too. <laughs> Allegiance is a tribute, in a way, to your dad, isn't it? Isn't it? Yeah. Uh, to my parents. Your parents. Because uh, in many respects, um, the character that Leia plays is... Uh, Leia Salonga. Uh, Leia Salonga yeah. is, yeah. is uh, a lot of my mother. She it's, was a tough lady. It's very touching to hear you talk about uh, having to recite the Pledge of Allegiance and, and looking through the window of the school and seeing the barbed wire fences. And the, the sentry towers and the, and the machine towers, guns the, pointed at us. Yeah, the irony of it. In America, by our go- American government, against American citizens. Could happen again. And if you have people like uh, Donald Trump who maintained that position, and I still maintain that he can learn if he just opened his mind 
and made the time. Well, he's and not, so he's, we have a seat saved with a sign <laughs> saying, every night. reserved for Mr. Donald Trump. So Allegiance at the Long Acre Theater, now playing. And, and also another uh, a thing that's been bugging me, you retweeted me, and Leia Salunga didn't. <laughs> so can you tell Leia Salunga to go fuck herself when you get to the no, theater No, I will not. <laughs> Because I, do, I don't think she can physically do that. <laughs> oh, we should let this poor man get on with oh, his life. Okay. We've kept him here a long time. I think I'm losing my voice. Yes. <laughs> There's so much we could talk to you about, I just George. came oh from my God. voice doctor. <laughs> this is, is one of those guests where uh, Frank and I are going to be after the show. Oh, we didn't get to this. We didn't ask him that. Well, we'll have you back another yeah. time. Yes. And we'll no, talk about... I'm here in I New York. I don't want you back. <laughs> I, what? What? <laughs> you what? No, I, I don't want you back. But... Uh, <laughs> I don't want to come back. <laughs> okay. Should we have George read this? Oh, yes. What do you think, George? You got any voice left in you? You've been listening to Gilbert Gottfried's amazing colossal podcast with co-host Frank Santapadre. Beautiful. Santapadre. Yes. Good uh, Spanish name. It's Italiano, but close enough. Italiano, ah. (laughs) And special guest George Takei. It's it's George Takei, not George Takei. (laughs) Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and our website, gilbertpodcast.com. Oh, my. <laughs> Thank you, George. Good so visiting with you. That, was a, that, I've lost my guess. voice. It was a thrill. My nephew, George Tikkei. <laughs> yes. Who was it? Uncle Sununu? Susumu. Uncle Susumu. So he's my double dangler. <laughs> he's your spirit. Well, dog. actually, he's dead now. Oh, yes. <laughs> You'd have to be quite quiet to be my... Uh, well, that's impossible for me, as you know. Oh, there's that possibility that we all have. Oh, yes. Yes. <laughs> when thy time comes to join that innumerable caravan that moves to that silent halls of death, Thou go not like the quarry slaves at night, but soothed and sustained by an unfaltering trust, lie down to pleasant dreams. Wow. That's the way to be quiet. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, I, know, I got chills. I know some lines from the Munsters. <laughs> 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 